let's get started. Road to Redemption podcast episode number one. What a better way to there is not a better way to start it than start it with this man right here, Lord Fusitua Toko. It is a pleasure to have you on as the first guest on my podcast. Thank you, brother. It's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. I appreciate the invitation. So just a brief uh, sort of uh, introduction on the Tokowa of what I've sort of found online about you. A former MP of Tonga, a Bitcoin advocate, a chairman of GoPack. Uh, you died twice, Toko, and you uh, resurrected and you come back. So if you want to speak on that sort of uh, story of redemption, the Road to Redemption podcast is about inspiring and empowering people um, and I'm sure this man is going to bring you some stories um, of redemption. And I'm sure he's here to inspire and empower our listeners and viewers. So just the first to kick it off, um, Doko, can you give us a sort of a background on your backstory, how you sort of grew up, um, a bit on the Bitcoin, uh, and the floor is yours, Doko. Yep. Oh, yes. Thank you, brother. Again, it's an honor and a privilege to be here, man. I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to be here and to connect with your audience. Um, yeah, that's awesome. And I love your work. Uh, I love your heart for our community. And yeah, I just award to everything you do, brother. Um, yeah, so me, um, I was born and raised in uh, Canberra, in Australia. Uh, my parents were in uh, Canberra in the 1960s to go to grad school. Uh, at ANU um, and while they were uh, at grad school uh, mum fell pregnant and they ended up settling in Canberra so they brought all uh, mum brought all her siblings over um, all her brothers and sisters uh, I'm not sure if you're old enough to remember a rugby league player uh, named Albert Fulavoy played for the Canberra Raiders with Ruben Wiki and Mel Meninga. Okay. Um, that's my first cousin. So one of my mother's siblings' kids. So she brought all her siblings over, got them settled in Canberra and began a life for themselves. Uh, so yeah, we were there. I was born there, grew up there. Um, but because my father uh, was the heir to the title that I now hold, uh, when his father passed, uh, we had to move back to Tonga um, in 1981. So dad went back, um, took up the title uh, the, and the estate and all the responsibilities of caring for the people uh, and for the land. Uh, so yeah, went back to Tonga. Um, couldn't speak a word of Tongan. So uh, the kids made mad fun of me. Yeah, of course. Me, uh, yeah, while I was there. So, yeah, I made a uh, promise myself before I left, I'd come make sure I learnt it um, as well as I could. So, um, yeah, I ended up coming top in the Tongan subject for my entire time in high school because oh, wow. I just started and started studied it um but i studied it by rote so i learned it all off by heart but i didn't know what any of it meant so okay the yep. example would come up and i'd write the right answer but i yeah i didn't know what the words mean i just knew that that's what was on the textbook so this goes here this goes here this goes here oh so yeah it wasn't until uh learning conversationally that i learned so yeah, kids make wicked fun of you when you're a uh, uh, from overseas. But um, yeah, so ended up being there for a couple of years. Then uh, my parents sent me to boarding school here to Auckland uh, in New Zealand. Uh, went to a school in Oahu um, called King's College for a couple yep. of years. Uh, I matriculated from there. So uh, anyone who knows that school uh, is a very different school from what it is now. Uh, back then, there were only the day boys were all from Remuera and the boarders were all rich farmers from down south. 
there were maybe three of us brown people. Uh, it wasn't until the year after I left that they brought the Latini brothers in as rugby scholarships. That's when they began importing uh, students. Yeah. Uh, back then it was still, yeah, it was still pretty barangy and yeah, pretty racist. <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, you, uh, I, I felt that more in New Zealand than I did in Australia, I think, because there, there wasn't yet a large population of us in Australia, we just sort of uh, blended in. Um, yeah. But because there's a population of Islanders in New Zealand, then there's a stereotype that Balangis make of us and a certain way they, they are towards us, um, etc. But uh, that was good. It was an eye-opening lesson for me. Um, then uh, I went on from King's to go uh, back to Canberra, to ANU, to go to uh, university. So um, I went to ANU, the University of the South Pacific, uh, and ANU, I did all my degrees uh, at those two places. Uh, so finished up in 99 uh, and uh, got admitted to uh, the High Court of Australia then, and then been a barrister ever since. Okay. Um, so barrister by career. Um, I began as a, uh, my specialty is uh, intellectual property and banking and finance law. But um, I began as a criminal prosecutor um, and uh, sort of in prosecution for a while and then uh, I went into administration and worked for the ministry, sort of running the courts and stuff for a bit. Um, became deputy secretary of the Ministry of Justice. Uh, and then I ended up um, going into private practice for a satellite company. Um, so uh, a company called Tongasat, uh, which was owned by Princess Villa Level. Uh, which is the company that leased satellite slots in space on behalf of the Tongan uh, government uh, to other countries, uh, companies. Uh, so it's a very lucrative business. It got a lot of money for Tonga, for the government, for the country. Uh, and it was a great um, experience for me uh, because telecommunications law is one of the, the areas that I specialised in. Um, then from there, was there for nearly a decade, then went into uh, private practice. Um, and uh, yeah, so into uh, corporate law and uh, worked as a corporate attorney uh, pretty much up until uh, nearly about a decade ago when my father passed. Uh, so when my father passed, the same thing happened to me that happened to him. Um, I uh, inherited the title uh, and the estate and all the responsibilities and duties that go along with it. Um, so my father was, <coughs> excuse me, he was the sitting um, Lord Member of Parliament at the time for the island group that we're from, uh, the Newers. It's the furthest north in Tonga. Uh, it's actually closer to Samoa and Fiji. So if you turn your AM radio on, on our island, you'll get up here, but you won't get in the Wallafa because it's closer oh, wow. to up here, how yeah. far away we are. Um, but yeah, so I went into, uh, because he was the sitting member, they had to have a by-election um, to replace him. Uh, so the Lords from my group, there's only three of us, and the Lords vote amongst themselves in the elections in Tonga. So the other two are my cousins. They uh, voted me in and have done so ever since, uh, ever since then. So um, up until last year when I vacated my seat, uh, because that was going on the third year of me being uh, overseas for medical treatment. Uh, so <clears throat> I couldn't really in good conscience 
Um, the first year was all right. The second year wasn't my fault because we were stuck because of COVID. Uh, the border was shut anyway. But I couldn't in good conscience go for a third year receiving a public salary but being abroad. Yeah. So I vacated my seat and I asked my cousin uh, to step in for me, uh, Prince Gardnuvalu uh, Fotofili, uh, which he was kind enough to do so. Um, so yeah, that brings us to now. Uh, but while I was uh, an MP, uh, I was recruited to be the chairman of GOPAC, um, which is the global organization of parliamentarians against corruption. So that's the legislative arm uh, of the uh, international anti-corruption uh, institutions. So the executive and law enforcement arm is, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the UNODC, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, <clears throat> excuse me, and the civil society arm is Transparency International. So what we do is uh, we go and uh, help set up anti-corruption commissions in countries that need them, uh, set up the anti-corruption committee in parliament to oversee uh, the commission. Uh, so for instance, uh, I went and set up uh, the Kiribati uh, commission and committee for them. Um, we helped uh, set up Fiji's committee. Um, and then the other major role, which uh, served as a good grounding for uh, my cryptocurrency advocacy is we trace uh, illicit financial flows. Okay. So uh, between two and $4 trillion a year uh, get siphoned off from corruption, whether it's bribes, uh, whether it's tax evasion, or whether it's the proceeds of crime. Um, that's money that's lost to corruption. Uh, the Sustainable Development Goals uh, from the UN, which are meant to end all poverty and hunger around the world, only cost four to five hundred billion dollars yeah so yeah. you could cure all world hunger and poverty about 10 times over with the amount of money that's lost to corruption every year well so we trace illicit financial flows uh, with nato that go to the middle east to isis um the flows that come out uh, with the triads and the China white and human trafficking that comes out of uh, Guangzhou and southern China through Southeast Asia uh, into the Pacific and gets transshipped to Australia, New Zealand and up to the American West Coast because it's easier for a ship to get into Australia or California if it looks like it came from Tonga and not from Guangzhou. So that's why there's a lot of transshipment through the Pacific. And the same coming back the other way. So the Sinaloa, uh, Cali and Juarez cartel cocaine money that comes back the other way. We trace that also. So we trace and seize uh, illegal funds yep. and repatriate them to the countries that they're from. So if it's uh, Sinaloa cartel money, uh, then we'll repatriate it and we give it out to poor people in Mexico and Colombia, uh, redistribute uh, the proceeds of, of crime. Huh? Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so that's um, the, how, uh, for me, that's the more important part is getting those proceeds of crime back to the people. Uh, and then the other place that I got recruited for was uh, the Commonwealth, um, as chairman of the Commonwealth Pacific Parliamentary Group uh, on Human Rights. So our focus there is uh, on climate change, uh, obviously because the Pacific uh, is affected the most in the world by climate change. Uh, we have countries like Kiribati and Tuvalu who are literally uh, 
two thirds underwater now. Uh, when I went to Kiribati uh, at the hotel, we had to wait before we went to Parliament to do our work because when we got up in the morning, the uh, the high tide comes into your room uh, about to the level of your desk. Well, so that's, we that's crazy. It's crazy, brother. The people say no climate change. It's all right for Balangis to say it in rich Balangi countries, but when ground people are literally drowning in their own country, <clears throat> um, yeah, that's 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 real life, bro. Yeah, so um, I was, yeah, so I was recruited by a lady named um, uh, Baroness uh, Patricia Scotland. She's the Director General of the Commonwealth. Um, she was the Attorney General uh, under Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister. Uh, but she's actually from St. Kitts and Nevis, a little Caribbean island. So she knows what it's like to be from what we call SIDS, small island developing states. So climate change hits two places the most the Caribbean and the it's South Pacific, Pacific yeah. because we're small, low-lying islands. So she and I are working to change the UN Refugees Treaty. So the UN Refugees Treaty was made after World War II to help Jews get out of uh, Germany and get resettled elsewhere in the world. So it focused on conflict refugees, uh, religious persecution refugees, um, political persecution refugees. So every all of those categories are recognised in the Convention. But if you're a refugee because your country's just sunk, you're not recognised as a refugee under the Convention. So we're working to get climate refugees recognised because that's the worst kind of refugee. You literally have nowhere to go because your country's gone. It's up in smoke, it's disappeared. So um, we're working to get that changed as well as what we do is we assess a country's carbon footprint and their emissions, whether it's uh, as they advertise or it's not it's a bit different um so we do that and the other few areas of human rights are violence against women and girls and human trafficking um care for the aged and uh youth work so these are all issues that are super high priority in tonga and the pacific so uh it, it fits in perfectly with uh, my work um, in Tonga. So even though I vacated my seat in the Tongan parliament, I'm still working as chairman of these two organisations. So, excuse me. So, um, while I was a member of the Tongan parliament, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in 2019, um, I uh, the government at the time passed some constitutional amendments. So the prime minister at the time tried to change the constitution to do a number of things. Uh, the king in Tonga is no longer uh, uh, an active monarch. So he has no executive power. Uh, he is exactly like Queen Elizabeth. Uh, he's a ceremonial uh, monarch, so he's not involved with the running of governments or the, the running of the country. Uh, we changed in 2010. Uh, the king at the time, George, uh, His Majesty King George V, uh, he's the only king since the Roman Empire, literally, uh, in the two and a half, three thousand years, to just wake up one day and go, you know what? I'm going to have a democracy and let really? everyone do what they really. Wow. No absolute king since the Roman Empire has voluntarily given up his power, just voluntarily. 
Um, so he decided we're going to be a full democracy. So he made the government that, of that day, draw up the legislation, draw up the constitutional amendments, and they changed the constitution, and they made him a figurehead and made the prime minister the boss of the country. He was elected by the people. And this was in 2010, did you say, Togo? 2010, that's right. So we're about a decade into full democracy. So we're still a young democracy. Um, so the first prime minister went along with it, 2010, 2014. The prime minister in 2014, he was still prime minister in 2019. He wanted to remove the powers that were left with the king. So we deliberately left a number of powers with the king for a particular reason. So because the king wasn't part of running the country anymore, he's like Queen Elizabeth. He's the only non-political person in the constitution. So the constitution has a parliament, has a government, has the court. So there is an element of politics to those. He, as a figurehead, because he can't be, under our constitution, the king can't be charged criminally and he can't be sued. So he doesn't really care who's in charge of the courts or the attorney general, because it's not going to affect him. All he wants is to make sure it's someone who's neutral and can do the job. So what we did was in 2010, we left the appointment of the attorney general, the police commissioner, the anti-corruption commissioner, the ombudsman and the Supreme Court judges to be appointed by the king, not chosen by him, just appointed. So they'd still be chosen by a panel of qualified people, but he'd do the appointments in the final decision. The reason for doing that is so that no prime minister could come in and use those positions as his lackeys. Yeah? Yeah. So we wouldn't be a banana republic and have a PM come in and make the, he'll force the attorney general to charge all his political um, opponents and make the judges uh, decide against all his opponents. So effectively to keep himself in power. So in 2019, the prime minister that day did exactly that. He tried to change the constitution to remove those authorities from the king and give them to himself and to take the power of the speaker of parliament and the justice, the chief justice of the Supreme Court and give them to his government. So yeah, that's anti-constitutional. So I got up in parliament and went, Whoa, 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 you can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> this is contrary to the Constitution. So um, I argued that uh, because, strictly speaking, under our parliament rules, every law has to go to the public for two weeks of public consultation. Yeah. But by practice, because not every law is a constitutional amendment, some laws are just uh, petrol is going to be a buck 20 this year instead of a buck 10. So those you just go straight through, straight through, straight through. So as a matter of convention and practice, those go straight through. Uh, but I argued if, if we're going to make such a fundamental change, this has to go to public consultation to see what the public say, because we don't have referendum legislation. So we couldn't hold a referendum like you would in Australia and New Zealand when you make really significant changes. Um, so this is the closest we could have to a referendum. So I had to travel around the country from village to village and go four hours uh, in the morning, four hours at night and explain the laws to every person in the country and then and not tell them that to be for or against it. I just said, this is the current law. This is the new law. This is what it does. You choose if you, if you accept it or not. And the country 90% said, because the government had kept coming on media 
and saying, no, no, they're lying. We're not taking the king's powers. We're not uh, getting the powers for ourselves. And then when I showed them the laws, because I put them up on a big screen and go, these are the two laws. You tell me which is which. Is which. Yeah, yeah. Does it look like they're doing it? And everyone went, you're kidding. It's there in plain, in, in plain time. Um, so 90% of them voted against it. Of course, uh, yeah. But after that two or three month tour, I got back to Nukwalofa uh, and I collapsed. I didn't realize I'd been ill for quite a while. Um, so I collapsed, I was rushed to the hospital and yeah, I, I died. So I, yeah, my organs shut down everything, I died. So they had to revive me and they knew they didn't have the medical resources in Tonga to save my life. So what they did was they kept me alive for 36 hours yep. while they tried to find an air ambulance. So they went Auckland, none, Sydney, none, Brisbane found one. So it flew from Brisbane to Tonga but the government at the time, because they were so upset, I'd just gotten back from that national tour to explain the truth to the people. They tried, they kept trying to delay the flight because the longer they delayed it, the higher the chance I would die. So they were hoping that they could delay it long enough for me to die in Tonga. Wow. Wow. So. Under the laws, if you're taken by the government, under the Tongan policy, if Tongan doesn't have the medicine to, to heal you, the government will fly you overseas. Okay. So that means the Minister of Health has to sign off on it. So they delayed that for two days for no reason. Um, and I was, I was getting worse and worse. And I'd already and, died. And, and they were doing this purposely just to, in hopes yeah, that you hoping that I would die. pass away. Wow. Yeah. Intention was to, to, yeah, to make sure if we, because the, they already knew the doctors had said the longer you delay, the higher the chance he's going to die. Every minute he's not uh, being operated on, he's going to die. So, it ended up being the Speaker of Parliament because under the Parliament rules, Parliament takes me because I'm an MP. So the Speaker went, forget about the government. He's an MP. We're flying him. So you just sign the paper and we'll fly him out. So that's what ended up happening. But you see how God works in mysterious ways, man. I was supposed to fly out Saturday and because... The, that government delayed it. I didn't fly out till Sunday, Sunday night. And when the air ambulance got there, they looked at my vitals readings and they went, you know what? It's just as well we didn't go on Saturday. He would have died in the air. His body wouldn't have made, he wouldn't have been strong enough to make it to Auckland. So wow. them delaying it actually saved my life. So the blessing even in the sky, they saved your life, even though they were it. trying to kill you. Yeah, the intention was to kill me, but it ended up saving my life. That's crazy. So that's, crazy, that's how, man. Yeah, that's crazy, bro. Then we get to Auckland. Um, three surgeries over two days, where I died twice again. Again, again. Um, yeah, they revived me, and the surgeon said, "We have never seen anyone that ill." Well, they said, we have seen people that ill, but they're all in the morgue. We've never seen anyone that ill who is now still alive. And they said, um, yeah, you just refuse to die. You, you died and you'd come back. And um, Let's my go, family, let's go. <laughs> my family were singing hymns in the waiting room the whole time. The doctors would have been report back and say what stage I was at because I was bleeding through 
nose, eyes, ears, mouth, everywhere. There's everywhere that there's just blood coming. So um, one of my cousins, unbeknownst to anyone, was recording the audio of the meetings um, for me in the hope that I would survive and hear them myself one day. So you can hear the meeting and the doctor come in at the first operation going, oh, it's touch and go, he's bleeding from everywhere. So we're gonna try and stem the flow. Uh, all my uh, guts had uh, perforations through them. So they close them up and then you hear the second recording. The doctor goes, um, we've closed all the perforations that we can find, but he's still bleeding, okay? So this is what we've decided to do. There are five possible points where the perforation might be. We're gonna pick one and we're gonna go in. And if it's the right one, we'll close it and hope for the best. If we go in and we don't find it, then we're just gonna sew him back up and give him to you for your final goodbyes and that's it. Yeah, he's not going to survive. So the next recording, you hear the doctor go, we picked one spot and that's where the hole was. That was the one out of the so five. Out of the five. Out of the five they could have picked, they picked the it one on they one. picked, that's where the perforation was. Again, crazy, bro. That's, not meant to go, bro. It yeah, wasn't your time. It wasn't your time. Miracles. Yeah, if you don't believe in miracles after that, man, you know, I don't know what's going to convince you. Uh, three times dying and being resuscitated and then a one out of five chance of picking the right spot. Um, yeah, crazy. So, yeah, they closed it up and then I'd had my throat was slid open because they needed to get a tube into my lungs. So there's my throat was open like that with a tube into my lungs. Uh, there's a tube through my nose into my stomach to feed me. So I couldn't drink a sip of water for about five months because I couldn't swallow because the muscles at the back of the throat no longer closed over the the windpipe. So anything that went through the mouth would go straight to the lungs. So I had to get ice cubes just rubbed on my lips for five months. You cannot imagine how dry your mouth gets wow. after not a sip of water. Yeah, five 100%. months. Mate. Five months is a long time. Yeah, and I was in hospital for about eight or nine months. So I had to learn to breathe on my own again. I had to learn to swallow again. I had to learn to speak again because my vocal cords were gone when they slashed my throat. So yeah, that was a long time. So I was, wasn't was even strong enough to hold up, say a phone and press it, play a game or something. So all I could really do was just lie there with a the screen to my face and with a thumb scroll and basically just read. Yep. So it was then that I got back into Bitcoin. I'd been introduced to Bitcoin in 2013 uh, by a cousin of mine. Uh, we were both computer nerds as kids and uh, we taught ourselves to program uh, code in basic and old computer language. If anyone knows, remembers basic, then yeah, that will tell me your age. <laughs> this computer language uh, predates floppy disks. There weren't floppy disks then. So we were taking it right back. This is old, old school. Way back. <laughs> Way 1980. back. 1980s when I first got my first computer. Um, so there was no operating system. You had to do all the, the calls live. So you had to make the operating system do everything as you went. You were typing the instructions, telling the computer what to do. So you used to load programs using cassettes. 
because the floppy disks weren't invented yet. So it was audio cassettes. Um, yeah, so he was a nerd like me. So he moved to the States and in 2013, he got in touch with me and he said, oh, um, there's this new protocol, Bitcoin. So uh, it involves two of your favorite things, money and computers. And I went, oh, really? So um, yeah, he said, oh yeah, I'll get you so because you can't get in time. And then I'll bring it over, uh, you know, end of the year, uh, a lot of tournaments from overseas come home uh, for Chrissy and then for Wicked for the new year. Um, so he came back and I was like, oh man, I've been waiting for this Bitcoin all year. And he's like, oh, about that. <laughs> um, I was kind of um, behind on rent and Bitcoin, Bitcoin, anyone listening who's been in Bitcoin for a while will remember in 2013, it went up to about $200, uh, which everyone then thought was huge. Yeah. So he said, I was a bit behind on rent. It went up to $200. And oh, no. Yeah, I was a bit tipsy. So I sold it all. He sold it. He sold and I was it. Like, Wait. That is absolutely no use to me at all. So it was Bitcoin was dangled in front of me and it was gone before was, your eyes. You didn't even see it yet. <laughs> Imagine if I had gotten in at $200, that would have been my, anyway. So three years later, um, uh, my father had passed by then. So I'd uh, uh, taken up the title. I was in parliament. So myself and a couple of the other lords uh, met an American businessman um, who was going to do some agriculture and aquaculture, uh, uh, marine farming pro uh, projects with us. Um, and he's one of those, if you're from the Pacific or from South America or Africa, the Caribbean, you'll recognize this kind of American businessman uh, he's got like a Miami Vice suit, slick back hair, uh, talks very fast and convince you that he'll make you a millionaire in a week. Yeah. And yeah, so we invested money with him, but he was a Bitcoiner. So he said, apart from the projects, there's this stuff, Bitcoin. If you invest in it, it's going to go to the moon. And the other lords were like, Where's the computer nerd? What's he talking about? And I'm like, uh, no, this is this stuff's real. So we invested in it, and as these businessmen often do, off he went, and we never saw him again. Didn't come back. Didn't come back. So off he went with our ag agriculture money, our aquaculture money, and our Bitcoin investment money. So, and what's worse is. I didn't find out till later the price he charged us for the Bitcoin was about five times the market value of Bitcoin at the time. So he really ripped us off. Wow. So yeah, that was 2016. And then three years later, when I was in hospital for eight or nine months straight, nothing to do. Um, yeah. So I basically just lay there and read every word that's ever been written about Bitcoin 24 hours a day because I had absolutely zero to do but lie on my back. Uh, every word that ever been spoken about Bitcoin, uh, every moving image that had ever been broadcast about Bitcoin. Uh, so what I realized, which is all Bitcoiners know, is that uh, Bitcoin is the most pristine asset that man has ever created. So pristine in the sense that it has inherent scarcity. So it has scarcity built into it uh, because Bitcoin is computer code. Uh, you can code it so that there'll only be a certain amount and there'll never be any more. So unlike gold, gold is scarce, but People are mining for gold every day. So they're finding new gold every day. Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin is only going to be 21 million. And that's it. That's it. Doesn't matter what you do. There'll only be 21 million. So it 
discovered digital scarcity, which you can only do once. And secondly, it was a um, decentralized distributed ledger, a decentralized uh, network and a distributed ledger, uh, which meant that you removed all central um, elite concentrated control over money and you democratized it by giving it to all the users, yeah, the power over the money. And then the distribution of the money, you, instead of being centralized with elite commercial banks, you distributed that to the users as well because it's peer-to-peer. They just send it between each other. So you're getting, giving, everyone's so, giving their power back to use their own money. That's right. Them. So exactly. So because of that, um, it is a really good investment for someone in a first world country because it is a good, what we call store of value. So gold is a store of value. You take um, the million dollars that you made and you buy gold bars because you can have five gold bars and that's a million dollars right there. Uh, you can store a lot of value in a few gold bars and you keep them in your safe instead of having lots and lots of paper everywhere. Yeah. So Bitcoin is an even more effective store of value than gold. Yeah. That's why it's a, um, it's a sound investment for someone in a metropolitan market. So if you bought $100 of Bitcoin in 2010, it'd be worth $13 million today, okay? Because Bitcoin appreciates at 200% per annum. Uh, that's the CAGR, what we call the CAGR, the CAGR the cumulative annual growth rate of Bitcoin year on year since its inception is 200% um, in value. So like I said, for a metropolitan market, um, it's a great investment to build uh, financial security and generational wealth. So traditionally, um, wealthy Balangis use real estate, assets, and investments as the foundation for generational wealth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those markets are usually uh, have high barriers to entry for people that look like you and me. Okay. Uh, they either have high barriers to entry because we can't afford to get in or they have high barriers to entry because there are gatekeepers uh, who won't let you in uh, because uh, they'll let you in at the Middle Mall Golf Club, but you they won't let you become a member of the East Auckland Golf Clubs where billion dollar deals are done on the golf course. Uh, yeah, they don't let people that look like us be members of places like that. So, there's both physical and practical gatekeeping. But with cryptocurrency, there's no barriers to entry. Your Bitcoin and Elon Musk's Bitcoin are worth exactly the same. And you both have exactly the same access. You can just go on Binance and buy some. So I realized for a metropolitan country, it was a great investment. But more importantly, for an emerging market, for what are called emerging markets or developing countries, poor countries like Tonga, it wasn't an investment. It could be a, a, a game-changing lifesaver right now. Yeah. So why? Because of this uh, Bitcoin saves two kinds of countries. Countries that are what we call GDP remittance dependent, which means their GDP or their gross domestic product, their annual economic uh, productivity 
depends a lot on remittances. And countries where they have hyperinflation, where countries like Nigeria or Venezuela, where you need a wheelbarrow full of paper money just to buy a loaf of bread, that's how low the value of their currency is. Uh, so Bitcoin solves those two issues. So for Tonga, Tonga is the most GDP remittance dependent country on the planet. Yeah? And re so, re remittance, just for the listeners, is when yeah. money gets sent from abroad to that That's country. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. So remittances are money that are sent home by diaspora who live out of the country of their birth. So the highest are India and China in raw numbers because they have such a large diaspora. India has 83 billion annually that they send back. China, 79 billion. Okay. But their economies are in the trillions. Mm -hmm. So that 79 billion is a lot of money, but it's not a great portion of their economy. They don't, they don't really need it all that bad. Tonga is a low amount, but it's 40% of our GDP is money sent back from Tongans overseas. So nearly half of our GDP is made up of remittances. So last year, our GDP was USD 510 million, 200 million of that or 40% was made up of remittances or money sent home from Thailand from abroad. 200 million. The problem was that only 130 million gets to Tonga because 30% or 70 million is taken by Western Union and the remittance companies and the banks in fees for sending the money. So just in fees, just for just in fees, just 30, for, 30 million out of, that, out of that 200 is taken 70 million, 70 million, 70. 70 million. Oh, wow, just in fees, so, right. in fees. So, I think about it globally. So, globally, 700 billion is sent. Um, from diaspora back to their home countries annually. 200 billion is lost in fees. Wow. The UN and the US aid budget to help poor countries is about 30 or 40 billion a year. So that goes into 200 billion seven times. So you will do seven times more good for poor people around the world than the entire UN and US aid budget just by moving your remittances from Western Union to Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. The reason you move it to Bitcoin is because on Bitcoin, on the Lightning Network, it does three things. It goes cross-borders internationally yeah, peer-to-peer -peer with no intermediaries, instantly and for free, yeah? So usually if you send $100 to Tonga, 70 will get there. Yep, 30 yeah, 30 charge them fees. So, yeah, so the 30% of the $30 taken in fees. And if your wage, which is the average Tongan wage, 100 to 150 a week, that 30 is a third of your wage. Yeah. So you say you're in Fuamotu, you take a bus ride to town for four hours, that costs 10 bucks. You wait at Western Union, because Western Union's only in town, for three hours, you get to the counter and the lady says, sorry, it's 70 because we take 30 bucks fees. So you get the $70, you come outside and the Benny Benny guys 
tax you or ask you for a 20. Yep, of so course. that's $50 now. And then another four hours back to the village, 10 bucks bus ride, that's $40 now. So you've taken 12 hours out of your day and only gotten $40. Whereas Bitcoin on the Lightning Network, you sit at home on your couch and it gets zapped to your phone instantly and it's a 400, yeah. So the impact that has uh, is game changing. Yeah, so that's course, the yeah. equivalent of you not paying any federal income tax at all. And this is, uh, so for someone out there who's listening right now, Lord, they can use, you say, the Lightning Network. And how does that sort of work um, if they're wanting to use the Lightning Network let network, network to send um, money abroad? How would they go about that? All they do is you download uh, a Bitcoin Lightning Wallet. Yep. You're the person in Tonga downloads a Bitcoin Lightning wallet. Yep. You buy some Bitcoin and you have them send you an invoice. Yeah. So it's just a QR code. A QR code comes up, you press a button and your app automatically reads the QR code and knows exactly how much money it is to send. You press the button and in under a second, it's in, it's in Tonga. So I've seen, we've done tests on FaceTime where the person receiving the money is in America and I'm here. And when I hit send, it's come up as received on their phone before my phone says sent. That's how quick Damn. lightning is. Because for the techno... Uh, the computer nerds out there like me, lightning, the, uh, lightning is effectively a TCP IP handshake that's left open. So lightning is between two nodes. When you usually do a Bitcoin transaction, two nodes open up and they have a transaction with one another. And then that transaction has to be written to the blockchain. And then it has to be broadcast through the entire Bitcoin network. And then you have to wait for a number of confirmations to come in. So you have to wait for um, Bitcoin miners to validate your transactions. With Bitcoin on Lightning, those two nodes, they don't write the transaction to the blockchain. They just open a channel with each other and it's like an abacus. You just slide beads of value back and forth frictionlessly between each other so that's why it's instant and can can these people when they do receive uh the bitcoin so how would they use it in the shops would they have to use it in shops to buy uh physical items if that shop accepts bitcoin is that how that works yeah or? so yeah so there's a couple of ways um in tonga uh I'm not sure um, most people know. So Tonga is 5% ethnically Chinese now. 5% of our population are actually Chinese. So since the late 90s, um, when Hong Kong went back to China, uh, there's been an influx of uh, Hong Kong merchants wanting to get their money out of China. They began coming to Tonga then. And then in the early 2000s, uh, southern China, Guangzhou, there was uh, another uh, sort of migration wave. So the significance of that is that Chinese entirely dominate the Tongan retail sector now. You will not find any ethnically Tongan-owned uh, shops, farikuloas anymore, anywhere. Every farikuloa in the country or store is Chinese owned now, um, primarily because they have ethnic connections to China, uh, which means business connections to China. Mm -hmm. And they have access 
to bulk cheap goods that our merchants just don't have and they can't compete with those prices. So around the early mid 2000s, they began undercutting our Tongan merchants until eventually there were no more Tongan Fadakolo. So in China, uh, Chinese people transact digitally using an app called WeChat. So if anyone's used Twitter now, they, they'll see there's a tips function where you can tip people on Twitter. So Twitter is trying to copy WeChat. WeChat is a social platform, but which they use like PayPal as well. Yeah. So Chinese are used to transacting in digital fiat. So some of those stores will accept Bitcoin yeah, because um, they already know about Bitcoin and they know how valuable it is and they're quite happy to take your Bitcoin off you mm -hmm. yeah. because they'll assume that as a Tongan, you have no idea how valuable that Bitcoin is and they'll say, yeah, 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 you will accept the Bitcoin and you'll pay for Bitcoin for something worth for 10 bucks but the bitcoin you've given them is actually worth about a grand mm. so yeah they're quite happy to receive the bitcoin yeah i bet they are uh, secondly yeah secondly there's a company out of singapore called wirex and anywhere in the world you can get a wirex visa card that you can send bitcoin directly to uh you send it uh that Wirex Visa card has a Bitcoin wallet attached to it with a Bitcoin address. So you just send it like you would normally to another Bitcoin wallet. And when it hits that uh, Wirex wallet, that is connected to the Visa card. So you just take that to any FPOS or any ATM and use it as if it was cash. Oh, okay, yeah. beautiful. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. And then finally, um, I'm just saying that my business partner is going to kill me for saying that because within the next month, uh, the company that I co-own uh, will come out with a visa card that we're going to make available to every Tongan on the planet. Let's uh, go. Big by market. Um, the aim of our company is to make every Tongan hopefully every Polynesian, but beginning with every Tongan on the planet, financially secure and financially prosperous by using Bitcoin uh, and the, the ability of cryptocurrency to give access to capital with no barriers to our people and access to instruments and financial tools and instruments to multiply their capital that were never available before. So that I have a team of nearly a thousand Tongan miners around the world now, under me mining Bitcoin for passive residual income, uh, mining and investing in Bitcoin and everything from doctors, lawyers, to janitors, to meat packers, factory workers, nurses, teachers, and yeah, about a good, nearly one third of them, that is the major source of their family's income. And a few of them have been able to not, uh, to yeah, retire, not work anymore, oh, and live solely off they make. So our goal is to make everyone have that choice. If I can give, put every Tongan on the planet in the position that they don't have to work because they have to, but only because they're passionate about something, then uh, my mission will be complete. So that's the reason for the Bitcoin rollout. So the, the replacing the GDP remittance is the first step in a four-step first phase in a four phase rollout which is how you bitcoinize a country the second step is uh, to make it 
Bitcoin legal tender so that people can transact and save in Bitcoin. Because now that you're getting the 30% extra that you used to lose to Western Union, you can use that. obviously everyone going to spend it to increase their standard of living. So if you're a fisherman in the village, maybe now your kids go to school with breakfast instead of without breakfast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you have an extra net to fish with. Maybe you can afford to pay the guy with the plow an extra day if you're a farmer. So you've got more crops. Um, so yeah, that's natural. Everyone's going to want to spend um, to increase their standard of living. And what happens in emerging markets like ours, emerging markets is the new word, buzzword for developing countries or poorer countries, is we don't have a large manufacturing base or a large professional base. So we don't have a lot of people paying income tax. Uh, so because we have a largely informal economy, countries like ours impose a consumption tax. Uh, so a GST, so that everybody has to pay tax. Because if you're a fisherman from a village, you don't own a car and you never fly overseas. So you don't need a driver's license or a passport. Uh, that means you can't get a bank account. That means you most likely don't pay uh, formal taxes. But if there's a consumption tax on everything you buy, then you still have to pay tax as a fisherman because you still got to buy stuff. So what happens when everyone's income goes up by 30%, that 15% that the government charges, that gets a 30% capital injection of new money that mm. wasn't there before. That money used to be in Western Union's bank account. Now it's that money is now in the Tongan economy going into the 15%. So the 15% that builds hospitals and roads and schools, that goes up by 30% now too, because people are spending that extra 30% yeah. into government's 15%. So that's a double win. And then the third win is eventually the fisherman in the village is going to go, you know what? I actually, I could get, I got by on the $70. It was hand to mouth, uh, admittedly, but I got by. So what about if I budget and get by on the $70, then the $30, not for the first time in his life, but for the first time in any generation in his lineage, someone he can afford to have savings. Yeah. That's, a, that's a beautiful because thing. Savings are the foundation of generational wealth. Yeah. That's, yeah. So first time in any generation in his family can have savings. But the kicker is you're not saving in fiat paper money, which loses value at 5% per annum because of inflation you're saving in Bitcoin, which increases in value by 200% per annum. So your $100 this year is worth $200 next year and $400 the year after that. So the more you save and the longer you hold it, the more it's going to be worth in the long run. So you get a triple win just out of sending it in Bitcoin instead of fiat, Western Union. On that so, note... On, the, on that yeah. note, Dogoa, sorry to cut you off. Um, the kids yeah. are crying in the background. I can hear them crying. So. Oh, man. <laughs> um, yeah, no, sorry, I, I always tell everyone. Um, yeah, you got to remember, I'm a barrister and a politician. Yeah, 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 so yeah. I'll just keep talking and talking, <laughs> just keep on talking until you go, that's stuff, stuff, no, stuff, stuff, stuff. That's all good, bro. I just want to thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy day. Oh, we can go. Pleasure. 
like you said, we can go on and on, and I'm sure we'll do more episodes. I just want to thank you, Doko, for sharing your knowledge um, and your story as well. It's so empowering and inspiring, and I'm sure I'm sure our listeners will get a lot of value um, from hearing this podcast. Um, but also, I just want to acknowledge you and commend you on. I always see you online. Um, always pushing and promoting and encouraging and supporting um, people of Polynesian background and anyone, especially on the Discord and and um, chilling as fugs. I always hear you just dropping dimes for free. Um, so I just want to thank you for that, um, Matakoa. Yeah, my pleasure, brother. Uh, you know, just like you, man, we chip in where we're able to and just hope it gives value to our people somehow. 100%. All right, on that note, Takoa, uh, you have a good uh, evening up there in Auckland. Um, I'm sure we'll Thanks, keep, we'll keep in touch. You, um, if you're watching through YouTube, um, don't forget to subscribe. Let me know your thoughts uh, and comment. If you're listening through your streaming um, podcast platforms, make sure you leave a review, but also show some love uh, to Lord. Uh, where would they find you, Doc? Most, mostly active on Twitter and Instagram? Um, yeah, Twitter and Instagram. I'm just... Lord, for store one word on everything. Beautiful. Thank you, Togowa. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you, man. Much love and blessings to the family. Afatu, likewise, Togowa. Afatu, Togowa.